Hey, thanks so much for checking out this episode of Golf Strategy School. Now, I know you're listening because you want to learn how to play better golf. But if you want to see how you compare to other golfers your age, you need to check out parforsuccess.com slash Griffin. That is par, the number four, success.com slash Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N. And what it will do is it will actually give you a free assessment where you can see exactly how you measure up against other people your age. And you can see where you're excelling, where you need to focus your time on. And this is an assessment, honestly, that you can take once a month just to see how you're progressing throughout your golf journey. So again, check out parforsuccess.com slash Griffin to see how you measure up against other golfers your age. Hey there, Marty Griffin here with the Golf Strategy School podcast, the only podcast designed to help people get over that milestone score of breaking 90 or if you're still working on it, breaking 100, that's okay, I'm here with you. Today, I wanted to share with you an awesome interview that I did with Coach Blaine Seitz. Now, Blaine is a PGA certified instructor and he's also a TPI certified instructor. Now, if you're not familiar with that, TPI is the Titleist Performance Institute and they focus more on the physical aspect of golf range of motion, mobility, strength training, things like that. So Blaine has a really good wide base of knowledge on the game. And he actually has a very, very similar kind of backstory to me. Started playing young, really enjoyed the game, wanted to get as good as he could and realized that he really wanted to make golf a part of his life going forward, if not a career. And that's exactly what he has done. Now, in this interview, we talk about quite a few things, uh, everything ranging from kind of performing under pressure, uh, knowing the difference between being reactive and proactive on the golf course and what that can really mean for your game. And it's a really, really good conversation. I think you're going to love it. It's a lot of really good material in there that you can learn from. And I just wanted to share this with you today. So, hey, I'm going to shut up now so you can hear my interview with Coach Blaine Seitz. Cheers, everybody. Hey, what's up, Golf Strategy School? Marty here with you again, and we are doing an interview with Blaine Seitz. He is the host of the Mobilitas Movers uh, Facebook community, which is a fantastic group of over a thousand people, really kind of taking a holistic approach to golf. And he's the owner of TourShotGolf.com, where he actually teaches. And Blaine is a person that I found through one of his many, many live streams. So if you want a guy who's willing to talk to you a lot, Blaine is absolutely that guy through his Facebook group. So Blaine, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you being here. How are you doing? Uh, thanks so much, Marty. I'm, I'm super psyched. I've been listening to your podcast and I really love the stuff that you're talking about and, and really honored to be here and kind of share some information and help people play better golf. Yeah, and that's that's really what we're all about. You know, I kind of focus on helping people break 90, but you have such a, in my opinion, a unique perspective on golf because of your past and what you've experienced from the kind of physical standpoint. So why don't you kind of let our listeners know how you came to golf? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll try to make it quick. So there's a lot of layers to it, but I, I basically started when I was four years old. My dad got me into the game and I kind of got hooked really quick and it was just this really passionate game of, okay, hit the ball, go chase it and and repeat. Right. Uh, 
it was about, I think I was 13. My dad joined a work league and I was invited to come play and started beating all the adults and was like, okay, I guess this is kind of something that I should pursue further. So I started getting instruction and lessons and that led down this route of like, okay, well, why not teach the game? So I uh, got my class A PGA card and went through that whole process. And, you know, that's kind of where I am right now. But, you know, to give a little bit of more background, kind of in that time frame, when I was about 15 years old, I was starting to experience some back problems, uh, particularly my lower back. It would flare up, it would lock up. And at that point, I was like, I don't know what's going on. I know I play a lot of golf and golf and back pain. They kind of go together, but I feel like I'm really young for this to be happening. There's got to be something else to this. So as I was going through the, uh, the internship process to become a PGA member, uh, I was kind of searching for, okay, well, what's the perfect swing? What's this ideal swing so that I can play pain free? I don't have to flare my back up. And I started tinkering with a lot of different things, but it was in 2011 when I was on one of my internships, uh, I was introduced to this thing called mobility. And uh, what happened, I was, I, was, I was showed a stretch for my hip flexors. Um, and when I stood up, like my back pain was gone. And I was like, this is super cool. I didn't know that that was something that was possible that you could like stretch and change the way that your body works. And so all of a sudden I'm, I'm hitting the ball a little bit farther. I'm hitting it straighter. My scores are coming down. My back pain's gone. And I was like, okay, we need to learn a little bit more about what's going on here. So that led me down the route of the fitness community, became a certified fitness coach. I was doing that for about five years. And where it really took hold was, you know, in parallel to all this, I'm a, you know, PGA teaching pro. I'm giving lessons on the side. I'm, you know, coaching at a fitness gym. And I would run mobility programs at the fitness gym. And, and what started to happen is I would invite my golfers to come into the mobility programs. And so we'd do like a 30, 60 minute mobility session. And then I'd get these text messages and emails and everything like, Blaine, man, I don't know what you did, but like my shoulder pain's gone and I'm hitting the ball far. And like, it would go on for like a week or two weeks. They would feel this residual, like, wow, this is really good. And so then I was like, okay, there's something more to this. I need to dedicate myself full time to it. And that's where the Tour Shot Golf Academy came from. Because I started looking at, well, how do the best players in the world trained to get better at golf and they're working with a swing coach absolutely that's a huge part of it but they're also working with a personal trainer and a, and a physical therapist they're working with nutritionists they're working with psychologists and i thought you know there's no one really out there providing that holistic approach to the masses and so for most people it's let me go get a lesson once every two three four weeks or once a year and then you're kind of on your own and what i found was that just doesn't work so what I did with my academy is when you come in, you're getting coaching from me, like you saw in the live streams, like all the time. Like, mm -hmm. yes, there's a one-on-one -on -one aspect, but what's so amazing about the community is if one of my players has a problem, I will make content around that problem and it helps everyone. And we all learn from each other because just because you're experiencing this problem now, doesn't mean you can't learn from the perspective of what somebody else is going through. Yeah, and we were, uh, for all you listeners out there, we've been chatting for 10, 15 minutes and we're like going back and forth. There's a lot of similarities between how we teach. Like I do the same thing. I ask for questions. I create around that issue because if someone has a question, there's more than one person who's you know, more than likely just too embarrassed to ask the question. But I got to say, your, your comment about playing in your dad's work league, 
the same damn thing happened to me. When I was like 15, I joined my dad's Friday night league. I shot two under par the first night and everybody's like, what the hell? You're bringing a in here? And I'm like, this is the first time I've shot under par. I don't even know what to do. I'm afraid of all these adults. (laughs) And I'm just like, ah. And yeah, I just, I had to laugh at that one because I, I went through that exact same experience when I was roughly, I was a little bit older than you. I didn't, I didn't have the skills quite that early, but that's so cool. <laughs> the, uh, the thing that I really like that you mentioned is, uh, you know, that when we kind of have that focus on the holistic approach, kind of all different sides of golf, because golf is a, a very diverse creature. There's the mental aspect, there's the physical aspect, and then there's the actual like mechanical aspect. When, when you're working with your students now, do you find that, that there's like a commonality in when they need these different stages. So for example, like most of my listeners are working towards breaking 90. Do you have any type of pattern that you see? So like people who are on that greener end of the spectrum, do they need more swing mechanics or is, are they starting to get into like the, the physicality, the mobility end of things? Do you notice any patterns there? Yeah, a hundred percent. That's a really good question. So try to keep me on track because I might go on here for a second. Because there's a Sounds lot good. of different there's a lot of different layers here. So I think at the end of the day, it comes down to first understanding what that player's goals are, because I don't want to give somebody a program or coaching that doesn't fit for them, right? I work with some touring pros and some collegiate players, and I work with people who just go out on the weekends and. While the elements that go into their programs and the coaching are the same, the level of it is very different. So understanding their goals is super important. Now, within that, once you know the goals, I believe you need to know what they're doing and why they're doing it so that you know how to fix it, right? And that's, that's one of the things we do in the academy is we benchmark and baseline everything so that we can measure progress as we go. Because if you don't measure it, you don't know if you're actually changing. And a lot of people go into a round saying, oh, this one was good and this one was bad. It's like, okay, well, let's look at your stats. And like, well, I don't keep stats. Like, well, how do you know, right? So when, when we're looking at a player's game, one of the things that I have them do when they first come into the academy is we go through a swing analysis. It's a comprehensive swing analysis. And I'm looking, I don't care what the ball is doing so much as what the body is doing. Cause I want to understand if what they're doing is a mobility problem, they don't have the range of motion or the motor control to fix it. Or is it just a technical problem where they do have the mobility and physical and, and the motor control, but we need to reprogram it through drills and exercises and things like that. Now, Once they get the swing analysis done, then we do go a little bit deeper. What is your mobility? How is your fitness? And then we do benchmarking for their full swing short game and putting to just really have a comprehensive understanding. And then there we can create a program. Okay, well, how do we get from point A to point B? Now, to answer your question of where do we see these certain patterns, I like to kind of think of it as this hierarchy. And this is where the the philosophy, the mobilitas method I've been working on and creating for the last 10 years has really come into play. And, And if we think of it as a triangle, at the top of the triangle is our golf performance. How do we play on the course? We're trying to break 100. We're trying to break 90, 80, 70. And I've started introducing a little bit of concept of how we break 60 because it seems like every year on tour, we're getting more players that break 60. And, you know, why not? And, and especially with the younger kids growing up, I don't want them to ever think that they can't. 
because I believe it's that next generation or the ones that haven't been born yet. They're the ones that are going to shoot the 54. If they grow up in an environment, like, why not? Right. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big things. When Al Guyberger did it, it was like breaking the four minute mile. It's like, okay, now there's a floodgate of people doing it. So we get that program, we get a place together, and then we can start to figure out where do we need to go from here. If we have a problem at the tip of the triangle with the performance, we look a layer underneath. Do you have the physical ability to make the changes to your swing, to control the ball flight, to make it do what you need it to do based on your goals to shoot the scores you want? Then we go a layer deeper. Well, what about the mobility? Because putting fitness on top of a broken frame leads to pain and injury. And especially with my background, having back pain, being a mobility specialist, being in that world, working with elite CrossFitters for about five years on their mobility. It's very important to me that you move well, which is why kind of our, I'll call it slogan is move better, play better. Cause I believe when you can move better, you play better. And then keep going down those two more layers there's a wellness element, making sure that you have the nutrition, hydration, and recovery aspects to your game, because you could be following the perfect plan, doing all the right exercises, stretching, but if you don't have what you need on a biological level to stay healthy, then you're going to burn out, you're going to fade, you're going to get stressed, you're going to gain weight, you're going to break things. And at the very bottom, at the very base, and you're going to love this, this is the mindset part. Because no matter what we do, we have to have the mindset to believe that we can do it, to believe that we are the kind of person who can shoot the scores we're trying to shoot. And as you know, as well as anybody and all your listeners know, sometimes the difference between shooting 110 and 89 is just the belief that you can do it. Oh yeah. Right. And so that's kind of the hierarchy that we take. Now, again, within that hierarchy, it comes down to the goals, how intensive, how much time do you have to work and dedicate and everything like that. But that's kind of the pattern that, that I like to follow. Yeah. And that's, that's a, a really kind of cool way to look at it. So it's, it's a, a detailed layered approach, which I think can suit a lot of people, whether or not they realize it. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where you just kind of have to trust in the process as you're working through it. You know, you mentioned like the, the difference between, you know, being up in the hundreds versus maybe cracking that, that 90 barrier can be purely, purely belief. I had a previous guest, his name's Will Robbins. Uh, oh yeah, I know Will. Sure. He's, he's fantastic. And he oh, asked yeah. me a question that absolutely blew my mind. And I use it all the time with my students now. When I have someone who's kind of griping about like, oh, well, I, you know, I left these shots out there and you know, I still had a pretty decent number. I ask them like, what if I told you today you were going to shoot your personal best but you were going to take a 10 on the last hole. How would you feel? And inevitably the answer is, well, I'd be pissed. You know, think all those shots I left out there. Like, okay, hold on. Now, what if you shot your personal best, but you took a 10 on the first hole? How are you going to feel? And that's usually just that stunned silence. You're like, crap, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, that's a great way of looking at it. It, like, it, it just kind of lays it all out there. It's like, you know, I don't care if I had an eight or a nine smacked in the middle of my round, as long as the number turned out good. And that's like you mentioned before, keeping track of your stats while you go, you might find that when that eight or that nine happened, you had this, like this just major brain fart. And you're just like, yep, I, I made a bad choice. And for some reason I went like, full tin cup, <laughs> you know, put a couple in where they didn't need to be and just had a hell of a time digging out. 
And then you need to be able to recognize, hey, if you shot really well and you had an eight or a nine on the card, you did an amazing job at leaving that hole behind you. Yes. Because we all know plenty of people, we've seen it happen. It's happened to all of us at some point in time where we let one bad shot or one bad hole follow us for a couple shots or maybe a couple holes. Yes. And then pretty soon you look down at your card and you're like, well, I had 37 on the front and then I don't know what the hell happened on the back because it was 45. Right. So the, the ability to kind of leave that behind is, it's one of those things where, and I'm sure you see this all the time as a coach as well, people ask about it, but they don't seem to grasp, at least in, in my experience, they don't seem to grasp the importance of that. So I guess I kind of sidewind walked into a question here. Uh, when we find people who are struggling with maybe like the bogey train or leaving one bad shot or one bad hole behind them. Do you have a particular method that you help your students with to kind of conquer that aspect of golf? Yes, a hundred percent. I'm going to come back to it, but I want to touch on something that you, you mentioned, because I think this is a really good point that's going to help all of your listeners here. And, and I am, uh, I'm going to apologize right now. I can't remember the guy's name, but last year I was, uh, out by the Grand Canyon, took a, an Airbnb in Flagstaff, and I stayed, you know, I didn't know who it was, it was just somebody's house, right? Mm-hmm. Turns out the owner of the house has been like a lifelong PGA member, and we're just staying up all night till like two in the morning talking golf, right? It was nice. awesome. But he gave me this thought, I think I want to share with everybody because it's brilliant. And, and he poses the question, what's the best you've ever shot for nine holes? Right. He asks his students all the time. They give him an answer. And he says, I bet you, you've shot better than that. You just don't know it. And they look at him stunned and he pulls out a scorecard and he says, look, you may have had a nine hole score for one through nine or 10 through 18, but let's look at three through 12. Right there, you shot two strokes lower than your best nine. So that right there can shift somebody's belief into, oh, I can shoot lower for a nine hole stretch. It just might not have been from the front nine or the back nine yet. And once you get that little leeway in of like, I have done this before, then you can piggyback on it into I can do it again. So that's just a super quick tip for anybody listening. Now, to come back to your question here, what do you do when you're struggling with the bogey train and how do you get off of it? Well, I'm a big believer that the thing you need to do doesn't start on the golf course. It has happened with training prior off of the golf course, okay? Being on the golf course, trying to fix that problem is too late. You haven't put in that work. And what I mean by that work is I'm a big believer in breath work, okay? So there's a couple of different breath work techniques that I will teach. And I'm a big believer that if you learn how to breathe properly off the golf course in a meditative state as part of your morning routine or evening routine, then you can quickly tap into that mind state on the course and separate yourself from what's going on enough to just look at it and be like, okay, let's come back to reality. So one of the ones that I teach, uh, probably my favorite technique is part of my morning routine. Every single morning I wake up and I do this as part of the first hour of the day before all the stress is hit. And I call it power breathing. And power breathing is kind of a two-step breath where you have a little inhale through your diaphragm followed by a bigger inhale through your chest with a small exhale and then you repeat that 20, 30, 40, 50 times. So I go (sighs) 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 diaphragm, chest out, (sighs) (sighs) 
and you just keep building it up and building it up and building it up and eventually you get to the point where you're a little warm you're a little bit tingly it's a really cool sensation and then after about 20 30 40 of these you take one last full breath and then you just let it go and then you stop breathing and when you're in this state of not breathing you realize one you don't need air and two you realize that everything in life is okay you're going to be just fine those things that you were stressed about can wait till later and it gives you that space now the final piece is eventually you're not going to be able to hold that absence of breath anymore so when that time comes you take one more final breath nice and big as big as you can and then you try to take that breath and you squeeze it up into your head for about 10 15 seconds and then you let it go and then you repeat typically two to five rounds and it takes anywhere between like five and 20 minutes just depending on how deep you want to go into it but what's so cool about that is it teaches you how to very quickly trigger your mindset just through the act of breathing now when a player's on the course i don't necessarily want them to power breathe because that's a little bit too distracting but i do teach them about square breathing or box breathing and for anybody that doesn't know square breathing or box breathing, you inhale, hold, exhale, and hold all for the same number of increment, typically about four seconds. Four seconds in, hold for four seconds, let out for four seconds, and then hold with an absence of air for four seconds. And if you've done enough breath work in the past at home, then when you're in trouble on the course, within just one cycle of that square breathing, you can come back to that state of like, okay, we're good. And from there, then you can start to make logical decisions and start to play strategy again. Okay, let's get back to, look, my swing might not be perfect today, but that's okay. Golf's a game of who can miss the best. Let me just make sure I miss in the right places to give myself the best opportunity for the next shot. And sometimes the emotion of the game gets so caught up that we lose the ability to think like that. Yeah, I agree with that 8,000%. I do have one follow-up clarification question for you. So yes. when you mentioned the power breathing, yes. you said you do it for two to five rounds. Is that, is that the full uh, diaphragm chest exhale 40, 50 times and then yes. the whole? So you're doing that whole entire cycle Correct. for two to five rounds? Yep. Okay, so then that brings me to another thing that a lot of people struggle with they really struggle to play under pressure. And this is kind of tangentially related to getting off of the bogey train, but I think it's more directly related to breathing in general. Yes. When people are, at least in my opinion, when people are struggling to play under pressure, it's because they don't know how to simulate pressure in their practice. Yes. I do that through, I'm a huge nut for ladder drills. You know, anything where there's a series of sequential um, obstacles that you have to overcome in a row I like to call it like pass fail golf. You know, you yeah. either complete something all the way through or you fail partway through and you have to start over. That's how I simulate the pressure with my students. But it kind of strikes me that with the power breathing, when you mentioned kind of like that tingly feeling, I could see how that could potentially be a simulation of pressure. So have you ever, or would you ever potentially bring that power breathing exercise directly before someone goes through maybe a specific practice routine that they're trying to go through? Really good question. It depends on if you want them to feel the pressure or not and how much you want to feel because doing the power breathing will make you more resistant to feeling pressure. So if the goal is we want you to feel pressure, feel anxiety, feel stress, then 
you've really just got to meet it head on, like you're saying of, hey, you got to make 103 footers in a row and you can't leave until you do. Because by the time you're getting into the 80s and the 90s, like it gets really stressful, it gets really hard. We don't want to eliminate it. Now, if it's before, say, a competition, and they know that the stress is going to be exponentially higher, even if they've practiced in a stressful environment, then I'd say, sure, maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes before they play, let's do some power breathing to just bring that ceiling down because they're still going to experience the pressure later, but now it's tolerable. So it really depends on the context of it. So yes or no, depending. Gotcha. Yeah. Just because for me, I, and, and as soon as you mentioned that tingling feeling, because I, I used to sing in a band. That's why I've got all this fancy microphone equipment. I just kept all of it when the band fell apart. But when I was doing that, I actually worked with a vocal coach. And like the first month, all we did is breathe. She's like, yeah, yeah. It, like and until you know how to breathe correctly, you are not going to be able to sustain tone, pitch, volume, any of that. So we worked for like a month straight just on breathing. And I am so incredibly thankful for that in my golf game. And I told her that as soon as like our second lesson had gone through, I'm like, you know what? I, I still don't feel like I'm a better singer, but I am playing so much better golf because the methods that, that she was teaching me in terms of how to breathe were able to lower my heart rate in the moment so I could perform better when the, you know, when the, the pressure was on. So I, I definitely feel how that could be used. And I really like the idea of kind of preemptively walking yourself through a, like a power breathing circuit to just kind of, like you said, lower that base level, because we all know that, that there's the nerves, whether it's, you know, like a, a beer fun scramble or whether it's like you're going for your state amateur qualifier, those things can bring up pressure in ways that you may not have experienced it before. And I think one of the, one of the big things and one of the most difficult things for a golfers is to recognize their own physical reactions when they are in those circumstances, because depending on what your physical reaction is, is going to influence what steps you take afterwards. So yeah, I definitely, like, I definitely like that power breathing because yeah, just kind of just, just taking the edge off. It's so, uh, just to elaborate on it a little bit to give the listeners an analogy. And, and, and maybe this is a little abstract, but hopefully it makes sense. But I like to believe that with practice, you can start every morning from what I call a zero. Okay, you're at a baseline. This is just, you're in touch with yourself. There is no stress. You're aware of what's going on throughout the day. That's kind of your zero. Now, what happens is throughout our day, we have little stresses added on to us, whether it's we're running a little bit late for work, our boss yells at us, you know, we, we uh, something happens on the golf course that causes this stress. And what happens is that zero is now 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 or 1,000. Like they just keep adding up. Now, if we don't have a proactive process, in place, they just keep stacking up. Now, what a breath work session, a particularly power breathing will do is let's just say you're ramped up to like 10,000 stress level beyond the roof. You can go through a power breathing session and you might not get back to zero, but maybe you go from 10,000 to eight. And the next day you're from eight to six and then six to five and five. And eventually you find, so it takes time. So for anybody listening who wants to try power breathing or maybe you've tried something like meditation in the past and you're like this doesn't work for me 
It's because it takes time. You got to peel away the layers until you get to that core, until you can find that zero. But once you're there, it's very important to do everything in your power to get back there every morning. I believe the morning routine is one of the most important parts of the day to set yourself up for success. But if you can get back to zero in the morning, then you go through your day much more proactive versus reactive, and you can make better decisions and you're more present. So rather than being on the range or on the course and thinking about, okay, what do I need to cook for dinner? Or what's that project that's gonna be, oh my God, I'm out here, I'm on 12, but there's a deadline in four hours, am I gonna, right? You can just push it all aside and be like, okay, there's only certain things I can control. Let's worry about those and let's just push everything else off to the side. So it just, it takes consistency more than anything. Consistency, consistency, quality, quantity, just keep doing it. Just keep chipping away at it. Cause when you find that little golden nugget in the middle, you're going to be like, okay, I got it. And I love that you said consistency so many times, because I gotta be honest, that's, that's almost like a, a curse word now from my listeners because i say it so much <laughs> good, it's coming from me now That's good. exactly yeah blaine blaine uh, blaine saying it not me take take all the the comments to him uh, <laughs> because i always talk about you know especially when we're talking about newer golfers like let's find a consistency in the low point of that golf swing and sure. then then we're going to start taking all the thins and the fats out of it and once we start taking our thins and our fats out, then golf gets a hell of a lot more fun right. quicker. That's but uh, something that you actually mentioned there is the, the proactive versus reactive mm. comment. Now, I absolutely understand where that's coming from, from our kind of level setting uh, day-to-day process. But I think that's a really important concept for golfers to understand and to really embrace on the golf course. And for me, when I'm talking about proactive versus reactive, this comes down to how we approach the game between our ears, because that is something that if you, if you have the forethought to plan out how you play a hole before you take a swing, you are going to be light years ahead because you are proactive and at, at the very least selecting targets the time but at the very least you have a plan so maybe 50 percent of the time when you hit that target you can continue with your plan and it's like it's all part of a process part of a flow do you find that there are any other proactive versus reactive kind of not tendencies but like places where we could apply that in our golf game yeah so I'd say if there was only one thing other than what we've talked about that I could teach anybody listening is the pre-shot routine. And the pre-shot routine, I believe, can make or break your golf game with a good, solid, consistent, well thought out and planned pre-shot routine. You are significantly more likely to execute the shot that you have in mind as opposed to just kind of winging it or being inconsistent. So the pre-shot routine that I teach, I borrow elements from, from all the coaches that we've all known, uh, but two of the big names are Lynn and Pia from Vision 54 down in Arizona, right? Think, Think box, box, play box. <laughs> right, so within those layers, I've kind of expanded a little bit. And so we have 
we'll call this the, the pre or what, what Lynn and Pia will call the think box, right? This is when you're behind the ball. This is when you're looking at the target. This is when you're figuring out your shot, but you're not near the ball. You're not getting ready to hit. This is when we watch golfers on TV, they're having the conversation with their caddy, right? That's this time. And there's five questions that we want to answer. And you can answer them in any order, but they all play off of each other. And that's how far, how far is the flag? How far to carry the bunker? How far to reach the water? How far to get around that tree? I mean, anything distance related you want to know. What's in between where you're going? Are we talking about wind? Are we talking about elevation? Are we talking about rain? Are we talking about going over water, bunkers, under trees? Anything that's brought us to navigate through. Then we want to know what the conditions of your lie are. What's going to be the quality of contact you can create and how's that going to affect the ball flight? And you have to keep that in and factor it in. Number four is where do you want to land the ball so that by the time it finishes moving, ends up in the ideal place or as close to the hole as possible, depending on the context. And then lastly, what club do you want to use to make that happen? And again, these variables all just play around with each other. And, and you, some people uh, who have been doing it for a long time have a very intuitive feel. And some people need to build that intuitive feel by asking those questions every time. Now, once you've done that and you've completed the thinking portion of it, it's time to go hit the shot. But there's a transition that happens between thinking and hitting. And we need to go from the left brain logic thinking over to the right brain feeling intuitive creative. And it's a very, very difficult thing for most people unless they, one, have a plan in place and two, they have a breath or practice to be able to tap into that side of the brain. So what happens is you ask all these questions and you want to be able to visualize the shot that you're trying to hit. Where is it going to start? How high is it going to move? How's it, you know, all those components you want to visually see in whatever way makes sense for you so that you can begin to take practice swings. And I will say practice swings, asterisk, I'm a big believer that they are optional. It's very controversial, but the reason why practice swings are optional, in my opinion, is because the purpose of a practice swing is to feel physically what you visualized mentally. And if you already have that feeling, you shouldn't go search for it because you'll lose it and pick up a different feel. But if you don't have it yet, yes, get it. And so there's a lot of times in my own experience, I'll step up to a shot and be like, I got this. I don't need to practice it. So I'll just go ahead and trust that gut instinct. But granted, I've been doing this for 25 years at a pretty good level. But for most players, if you don't have that intuitive feel, go find it. Go find the shot that feels the most like what you were visualizing because that's the one you want to commit to. Now, once you've practiced it, that's when a couple really quick things happen. You're going to stand behind the ball. You're going to pick out an intermediary target. You're going to line yourself up. You're going to confirm that everything looks good, and then you're going to execute. So that all happens very quickly, but it doesn't happen until you get that commitment of your feeling. If you don't have the commitment of your feeling, don't swing. Now, the last step is after the shot, most people forget to do this. Super important, you have to reflect on the shot that you just hit. And I've heard you talk about, it's not about whether the shot is good or not, it's did it meet your expectations and match your routine. And so we have two outcomes. Either the ball does what you want it to, or it doesn't. If it does, super important, you have to celebrate it with a positive emotion. You can let out a cheer, a scream, a fist pump, or you can take it all internally, but you have to create that positive emotional reward because we remember those. The last thing we want to do is hit a good shot and get mad at it. Oh man, I hit that one a little thin. What are you talking about? You're three feet away. You're fine, <laughs> right? Because that positive emotional reaction is we can tap into more of those later, which I'll get to in a second. Now, Golf is a game of who can miss the best, which means the majority of the time, 
it's not going to be perfect, but there are elements that you can take away from it. So you have to learn from those shots. What did you do well? What would you change next time? And when it comes to asking what would you change next time, don't change all of it, change one little variable. One variable at a time, otherwise you don't know what was working. And if you follow this process, then every single shot that you hit will get you better because there was an intention and a purpose and a focus behind it. And if you don't have a specific intention, now granted, right, wrong, or indifferent, whether you pull it off or not doesn't matter, it's did you execute on that intention. Now, to come full circle here, on the positive shots, the ones that do work well, this is a little golden nugget for all your listeners, there's this special place that I call the mental library. In the mental library, I want you to imagine, Marty, you're walking through this library, you're looking at all the shelves, and you reach up and you pull down this book and you start flipping through the pages. And you're like, oh man, this book is full of nine irons. These are all the best nine irons I've ever hit. Man, here's, here's the hole-in-one that I hit four years ago using my nine iron. And you remember all the details of it. You remember the time you used that nine iron to hit the, the island green at TPC Sawgrass, right? You have these very positive emotions. If you ask most players, hey, have you gotten a hole-in-one? They will tell you every detail about that shot. They know what they were wearing, who they were with, what hole. What the, there's a very strong correlation. So these positive shots go into a place I call the mental library. Now, what's so cool about it, to go back to the pre-shot routine, is we want to visualize a shot and be able to feel it physically the way that we visualized it. But we already have a full library of great shots. And we can use a technique called tapping along with breathwork technique to take a shot we've hit maybe days ago, weeks ago, years ago, and hit it again in a different situation. So let's just say, okay, you hit a, a hole in one with that nine iron, it was uh, 130 yards uh, with a little fade. Well, the next time you need a nine iron, next time you have a 130 yard shot that needs a little fade, next time you're on that hole, whatever the context is, you can think about that shot, and while you're thinking about it, go through the same pre-shot routine to visualize it, and you can do something called tapping, where you literally just take your toes inside your shoes and go right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, and you just gently tap your toes back and forth. And what it does is it takes all the extraneous details and blocks them out and allows you to focus on that one thing. Because golf is so easy to say, okay, don't go in the sand, don't go in the water, don't go in the trees. And if you say don't go do something, your monkey brain doesn't understand don't. It just says, okay, you're thinking about the water, trees, and sand, that's where I should go. So when you tap into a shot, and this can be done at any time, you're saying, I don't care about those other things, I'm focused on this one. And this is why a lot of players find that if they're in trouble, if they're in the trees and they have to punch it out under a branch and they only have one option, they pull it off because their focus is narrowed down to one shot rather than being in the middle of the fairway and saying, I can do anything. And that's where they have the mess up. And so for your listeners, they're like, oh man, that happens all the time. I hit a perfect drive right down the middle and then I shank it because you weren't narrowed in and focused on one specific shot. And again, it doesn't have to be that you picked and executed on the perfect shot. It's just you committed to something and that's it. And then you learn from it every time that you take that shot. That's really interesting. I like that, that tapping philosophy to kind of get yourself back in that mindset of that, that really good shot, whether it was an ace, 
just a smooth, buttery, whatever club. I've, I guess I've never really heard of that process. Can you tell me a little bit more of the how-to behind that? I mean, I know you said kind of thinking about it and tapping sure. in, your, in your shoes. Is it truly that straightforward? More or less. So I'll give a shout out to uh, Dr. Allison Kurt. Uh, LPGA master teacher professional. Right? She's been on the show. <laughs> oh, awesome. Cool. Yeah. So I learned this from Allison. I went to, I was speaking at one of the PGA shows in Vegas. I think it was like three years ago and she was there. So I wanted to go see her talk and went in on her presentation. This was a big part of it. And I started implementing it right away. And I, I kid you not, I had one of the very best rounds I've ever played. The next round I played implementing it. And it was so stupid because I couldn't miss a putt. And I would have shot my best round by a few strokes, except for I get to number 18 and I pound this drive right down the middle par five. And I'm like, yeah, I can hit a 210 yard seven iron over water. I'm amped up. No, no, I couldn't. No, I, it was stupid. But aside from that, so tapping comes from the science of, I believe it's EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprogramming. Don't quote me on that. It's something like that. What happens is it's a technique that's used a lot in traumas. Uh, when like say uh, vets come back or from overseas, they have PTSD, they need to reprogram and rewire so they don't have so many negative associations going on and they can get back to a, a normal life. And so what tapping does, when you take two sides of your body and you go back and forth, whether it's your fingers, whether it's tapping your chest, whether it's tapping your head, whether it's tapping your feet, is it sends a little signal back and forth between your brain, between the synapses in the middle. And that simulates the same brain pattern that happens during deep REM sleep. And so you can get into an altered mind frequency to block out all those other things and get back into what you're trying to do. So I find that it works best in conjunction with square breathing that we talked about earlier because it brings the heart rate down and brings in a level of focus because you're focusing on the shot you do want not all the shots that could happen so you're trying to just narrow that focus in as tight as you can so you think about the shot that you want you breathe you go through your pre-shot routine you're tapping and i kid you not when i do this on the putting green for anybody who's played like the tiger woods video games and they have the putt line and everything like that I kid you not, I will look at a green and I'll start to read it and I begin to tap my feet and this line just like comes out of the ground and you're like, there it is. Okay. <laughs> and you got to lock onto it. And then if you get the speed right and you can start it on that line, you're going to get it. And that same line can happen in the full swing. So if we think of like uh, top tracer or track man, flight scope, you know, they have the line that we see. You can do that in your mind. You see the shape of it, whatever trajectory, whatever curve, and you're trying to tap in a line and make it stronger. And, you know, Tiger talks a lot about feeling that shape in his hands and then getting his hands to match it. It's all kind of different ways of saying that same thing, but it really is that simple so long as you go into it with that intention. Think about what you do want, tap into it while breathing and just focus, but go through that pre-shot routine process that I was talking about earlier and I guarantee you, you're going to play better golf just for that one thing without having to change your swing. It's just maximizing what you're already doing well. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, golf is a, a game of who has the best bad shot. Yeah. When, we, when we talk about tapping, if because conceptually it makes sense to me, I, I definitely recognize how we can take a physical action and 
and a stimulus and tie it to a memory and hope to draw upon that experience and recreate it. If someone is not as familiar with that whole process as, as you and I are, we've been playing for 25 years, how would they go about starting to introduce tapping? Like how would they practice tapping to know that they're doing it correctly so they can then take it on the course? I start with putting. I think that's the easiest one. And I say that because when you just look at the game as a whole, putting really only has two dimensions. You're talking about speed and direction, right? Forward and backward, side to side. You don't have to get the ball in the air. And by taking that massive variable out of the equation, you're going to have more success right away. So one of the things that I would like to do, uh, I don't know if anybody, let's just say, let's assume they're not familiar with aim point, right? So the aim point idea, if you are familiar with it, you can calculate based on the speed of the greens. Yeah. How much is it going to break? You stick a couple tees in the ground. This is where I'm going to start. Here's a tee that I want to aim to. And I'll spoil alert to everybody. The secret to putting is that every putt is a straight putt. Treat it like it's straight, right? So there's a little golden nugget for you. I've given away all my secrets. But <laughs> the idea is that's where you start, is you start to see the line because you know where you need to aim already. You've calculated it. If you don't, then by all means, hit five, ten balls and kind of get a rough idea of it. It doesn't have to be super precise. But then as you're seeing the shot, start to tap your feet back and forth and just go through the pre-shot routine that we were just talking about. Now, with putting, it's a little bit different. The five questions we ask in full swing is how far, what's in between, what's the lie, where do we want to land it, what club do we want to use? In putting, it's still how far, but then the what's in between comes down to like how fast the greens are, the lie is what's the slope, and then it's what line do I want to get started on and what speed am I going to hit it? So it's the same questions, but because there's one less variable, they're slightly different. But you go through that routine, stand behind the ball, look at it, tap into it, make a couple of practice swings, lock onto it, step up, and then execute. Now, if we're talking away from putting, one of the best ways to do it is to think of a shot that you've already hit in the past with maybe your favorite club. A lot of players, they're just going to grab a seven iron on the range and hit a whole bucket of balls between seven iron and a driver. So you've probably had one before that there was a good seven iron. So what you want to do is the same thing. Stand behind the ball, full pre-shot routine, visualize the shot you're trying to hit, and then go forward and try to hit it. Now, here's the biggest part of all of this for anybody wanting to try. If you don't get it fairly successfully within three shots, move on. Don't just beat a whole bucket of balls. You get one try, you get two redos, and this is, this is a whole other topic, but if you get the shot, and this goes to any practice session, if you execute on your first shot the first time, don't try that shot again. Don't just hit a whole bucket of seven irons. If you get the first time, go to a five iron, go to a hybrid, pretend like you're playing the course. But if you go for that seven iron and you're like, okay, it was close, but I'm going to change one variable and try it again. If it's good, move on. If it's not, you get one last final try, but no more than three. Because then what starts happening is you start mixing these signals in your brain and you're saying, I'm trying to do this, but I'm getting that. And then there's this hesitation. And I'd rather you just step away for a minute and come back to it later in your session. So putting is a great way because, sure, you can hit four, five, ten putts from the same distance. That's totally fine. It's a little bit of a different context. You're working on speed control. Again, you're not worried about getting the ball up in the air. But when it comes to full swing and a little bit of like short game stuff, don't overdo it. Don't dwell on that shot. You need to practice like you play so that you can play like you practice. And you don't practice 
I'm saying you don't play hitting 27 irons in a row. That's just not how it's done. Is that a good score if you are? <laughs> yes. Unless you're Tin Cup, and then it's a great score. Well, at the very least, it's a great story, yeah. I, yes. I like to share the fact that I think my, my biggest single hole score ever was in a tournament. It was a 13. It was on a par three, and it was five in the water just going pure Tin Cup. I can make it. I can make it. I can make it. And uh, spoiler, I couldn't. <laughs> well Blaine I really appreciate you hanging with me and, and talking tonight I obviously you and I are golfers we could talk golf forever but I want to be respectful of your time if you could leave us with one of your I mean we've talked a lot about a bunch of different things if you could leave us just with one of your favorite practice routines maybe a go-to practice that you like to do before you go out and play so our, our listeners can maybe implement that in their own game yeah, absolutely. So probably one of the most important things that I teach having to do with the physical side, the fitness and the mobility side is something I call my power warm up. It's one of the first things you learn when you come into the academy and it's a five to 10 minute mobility prep routine that I have all my players do in the morning as part of their morning routine. They do it again before they start a practice session, before they play, even if they've done it in the morning. And they can also do it throughout the day if they've been sitting behind a desk or they're traveling or anything like that. And it's, it's a super simple routine that targets all the mobile joints in your body, gets them loosened up, but it also at the same time activates the stable parts that are meant to be strong and produce speed. And so by the time you're done with this little five to 10 minute routine, your posture is better, your joints are going to move better, your brain is firing better, your balance is a little bit better. And it all just takes the routine and the consistency. But many of the players I work with, they're like, look, I do this every single day and I'm noticing improvements every week. I'm getting a little bit better. I'm getting a little bit faster. I'm hitting the ball a little bit farther just from going through a little power stretching routine. And that's the power warm up. Now, I, I'll leave it up to you. I can do a couple of things. I can either send you a link that we can send people that will show them the power warm-up or I can take them through it right now. But uh, whatever is easier, because I know not everybody's going to be watching the video. Maybe they're just listening to the audio here. Um, but that's, that's one option. Or we can just send everybody over to my Facebook group, uh, contents in there. But uh, we can go down any route. But I would say, regardless of that, the most important thing that most people overlook is a proper warm-up routine. You, how you practice and how you play will be based on how you've warmed up and what your body can or cannot do. And if it can't do something that you're asking it to do, you're setting yourself up for failure. So you might as well warm up the right way so that you can perform the way that you're trying to. And I will just throw this, this one muscle out for everybody hip flexors. Yes. Holy crap. Hip flexors. I, because of my heart surgery, when I was 12 years old, I was in the hospital for, I was in the ICU for three months afterwards. So I had a ton of hamstring atrophy and I had to work really, really hard at stretching out my hamstrings because I had a ton of low back pain, like immediately after that. And I'm sorry, 13 year olds, 12 year olds, they shouldn't have low back pain regardless, unless there's some actual catastrophic injury. Right. I worked really hard to get rid of that. I had, like, I thought I had conquered it. And then of course, as we get older, life happens, we have less opportunity to do things. And as some of you listeners know, like I recently had a pretty 
serious heart episode back in June where I had to really reevaluate what I was doing for my physical fitness. Uh, and I happened to know a yoga instructor who works out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And she, like, we talked about all the different muscles that work through the golf swing. And she's like, you know what? It's going to seem weird. You're going to be surprised, but work your hip flexors. You will be surprised at how much it loosens up your back. And holy crap. I, I never have been more blown away in my life how much a hip flexor could influence your back pain. So, I, I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's, yeah, something, it's something that can really, really take you, you know, uh, by surprise at the very least. But even if you already do regularly work on stretching your hip flexors, I think it's, it's a great idea to have a specified just short, sweet, warm-up routine that you do. And I love the fact that you have people do it every single morning, period. And then also before they either play or have a practice session, because again, especially with age, as much as I hate to say that at 37 years old, you'd be surprised at how much just periods of sedentary time can really slow you down in terms of performance. So I definitely... Definitely appreciate that. So Blaine, again, thank you so much for being here again tonight. And if people are looking to find you, I'm going to put the link to the Facebook group in the show notes for this episode, but where else can they go to learn more about you? Yeah. So my website, tourshotgolf.com. I'm on Instagram at tourshotgolf, uh, YouTube at tourshotgolf. Uh, but the Facebook group is, is really kind of the main hub. I put, like you said, I mean, there's live coaching content up there all the time. So you come into that, it's a free community. Uh, I'm, I'm constantly talking about some really, really cool ways. If you like what we've been talking about on this show, we just, we go super deep into all of those things there and give people a little taste of what it would be like to join the Academy. Yeah. And for those of you who aren't going to look at the show notes, that is Mobilitas Movers on Facebook, correct? Yes, that's correct. Alrighty. Well, again, Blaine, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much, Marty. All right. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Coach Blaine today. It was a really good conversation and we don't want to just leave it at that. Blaine wanted to pass along a thank you to all the listeners. And so if you check out in the show notes, I'll put the link in here and he's offering a free copy of his book, Better Golf from the Inside Out. All you got to do is check out the link either in the show notes or in the video description here, depending on where you're watching and you'll be able to sign up and get a free copy of his book. Again, it was a great conversation with Blaine. I hope you take advantage of that book. There's some really cool information in there, and I will catch you later. See you in the short grass. Cheers, everybody. All right, thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Strategy School. As always, if you want to keep it in the short grass, all you got to do is put those lessons into effect. And if you want to see exactly how you fare in terms of your physical performance to other golfers your age, head over to par4success.com slash griffin, and you'll be able to see exactly where you line up and match up with other golfers your age based off of this this free performance assessment that Chris and his team has put together. Again, that's parforsuccess.com slash Griffin to see exactly how well you line up against all their golfers your age. And I'll just drop a link to it in the show notes.